0: and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to
1: learn more about the many perks of being a book
0: lover. This week, we are getting in the spirit of the first Saturday of May, a day that is sacrosanct for many Kentuckians because of the running of the Kentucky Derby. A love of horses and bourbon whiskey are high on the list of things that Kentuckians are proud of and want to export to the rest of the world. Bourbon is big business in our region and has had a surge in popularity over the last decade. Around 90% of all bourbon is produced here in the Bluegrass State, and at no other time of the year is bourbon more popular in Louisville, Kentucky than. During Derby season. Our guest this week, Brian Hara, is an attorney who developed an interest in bourbon through his work in the industry. He started by writing a bourbon history and law blog and has been featured in bourbon documentaries. His book, Bourbon Justice, How Whiskey Law Shaped America, is a deep dive into the history of bourbon law that goes back almost to the founding of our country and highlights how bourbon cases have affected all types of commercial law, including consumer protections and trademark law. He wanted to tell the stories of how our country and bourbon grew up together. He is also a bourbon connoisseur who gives tasting notes on various bourbons on his blog and throughout the book. He chats with us about how he fell down the literary poe hole as a teen, how Victoria's Secret benefited from bourbon law, and he gives me and Carrie some suggestions of bourbons to buy for the bourbon drinkers in our life, whether they be newbies or longtime fans.
1: When it gets close to May, people in Louisville start thinking about the Derby, and to go along with the Derby, people think about bourbon. Really, in Kentucky, people think about bourbon all the time. Our guest this week is Brian Hara. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I really look forward to talking with you.
0: I bought your book to give to my husband this past Christmas because he is a huge bourbon fan, and he's the one who actually suggested that we talk to you for the show. He has even given me some input on some of the questions he wants me to ask. So tell us just first just a little bit about you. Where are you from originally?
2: I'm originally from Michigan, a small town in Michigan, but I moved to Lexington in 1993 for law school and then met a girl from Louisville, and now I'm from Louisville.
0: Of course, that's the way those things work. Were you a big reader when you were a kid?
2: As a kid, I'd say a slight reader, but not so much on novels. I was focused more on plays. I had a teacher in high school who loved Shakespeare, and the teacher and I really connected And I ate up as much as I could there. And I was in musicals through high school as well. So I was really looking for reading that I could participate in or imagine myself in. And I found that reading plays gave me that opportunity. And then I really fell deep into the Poe hole and had an (laughs) anthology that I would read all of the time. And it's a book that I still have. And have proudly passed on to my son. And I don't think he'll get into it as much as I have, but he uh, he does appreciate it. And Poe even has words that he uses that I still remember, like in the bells, tintinabulation is just a, a word that I know because of Poe. And I loved how he used words.
1: Wow. I've never heard it, a Poe hole. I've, <laughs> I've never heard that <laughs> phrasing, but I love it. And I think I'll have to use that.
2: Coined right here, right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Carrie is an English teacher, and I bet hearing somebody say that Shakespeare and Poe
1: were their favorites—it's pretty exciting. Most of the time, I mean, I think you might be the first person we've ever talked to who specifically mentioned plays. So it's interesting to me to see what sparks different people, you know, in their Mm -hmm. in their reading life. You are a lawyer, so you did a lot of, I guess, legal document reading in law school. What's your reading life like now as an adult?
2: Uh, now, I I still read so much as an attorney that I don't find quite the escape that I used to or that a lot of your listeners will find in reading because I spend all day reading. I'm, I, I read cases, I read statutes, I read court opinions, and then I Part of what I do is try to write persuasively in briefs to try to convince a judge to rule one way or the other. So I probably read too much during the day. So what I have done, because I'm not going out and I'm not finding new books to read, is I've followed the books that my two kids have had to read in high school. I've got one out of high school and one in in high school now. And so when they have a reading assignment, I'll either read that same book after them or at the same time as them. My recent reading has all been things like Fahrenheit uh, 451. and But I'm also reading The Hobbit because my son, he's given that to me. And I just finished Catcher in the Rye after he had to read it. So that, that's mostly what I'm reading now. And I, I'm enjoying going back to the old classics. I think I'll I'll get new books sooner or later. But right now I'm enjoying the memories that I had from reading these the first time.
0: So you published a nonfiction book in 2018 called Bourbon Justice, How Whiskey Law Shaped America. So can you give our listeners just a brief summary of what your book's about?
2: Sure. I started writing a blog first, a bourbon law blog, and I slowly but surely realized how much material there was out there. And what I mean by that is I would find cases from the 1800s about distilleries that you can still visit today. And there was some dispute being reported on. And I at first just thought, okay, that's that's cool. I'll write a blog about this. Maybe other people will find it interesting. And then the more that I read, the more I realized that bourbon law was at the cutting edge of the development of American commercial law. It was the foundation for trademark law. It provided the nation's first consumer protection law. It dealt with tax issues because bourbon has traditionally been so heavily taxed. It provided contract rights and negotiable instruments for financing when barrels were sold and purchased and resold. And I ended up realizing that the country essentially grew up along with the bourbon industry. Both started with a laissez-faire attitude, no consumer protection, and both at the same pace developed into a nation of laws. And so the story that I try to tell in Bourbon Justice, it's not a law book. It's not really a bourbon book to some extent. It's more of a U.S. history book and how the nation developed. And I'm using bourbon as my mode to get there.
1: You you mentioned that through doing your blog, you were finding this information about the law and bourbon. When you say you were finding that, were you having to dive deep into research? Or tell me a little bit about what that sort of looked like, that process of finding this information.
2: Yeah, because I'm a lawyer, I have access to databases. And in a way, it's a lot like online search portals work at least now. We used to have to research in books, but now it's all online. Mm -hmm. And cases, opinions from judges back to the early 1800s are all online through these services. And so to one extent, it's as easy as searching for the word bourbon and (laughs) being able to look at all of the hits and, and see what I get. But it only gives you part of the story. So where it really got interesting for me is trying to find the factual backbones from these cases. And that involved going to the archives in Frankfurt where circuit court cases go to die. If they weren't burned in a fire or drowned in a flood, they ended up being stored in the Kentucky State Archives. And my wife went there and we both researched deposition transcripts. We found exhibits that were used in cases in the 1800s we found testimony and I was able to dive deeper into the cases and make it more a a story about heroes and villains in the Bourbon world to tell the story instead of just telling what a judge ruled in a particular case. So it involved really two aspects, searching the online resources that I have access to, and then really taking a deep dive into all of the facts that went into a particular case.
0: It's pretty amazing to me that one particular type of liquor could have such a big impact on the laws of our country. And so, I'm wondering what you think it is about bourbon specifically that gave it such a broad influence on the laws.
2: I've I wondered the same thing as I saw it touch so many different areas of the law. I wondered how could bourbon have that wide of a reach. And so, I've given this some thought, and and I. I think what the answer is, is that it was such a huge economic engine that spanned from farmers to laborers to consumers. It involved high finance, taxes, rebellions, and, and prohibition. I think it had the broad influence because it touched so many different areas of the community, whereas bigger industries like the railroads were really focused just on expansion and getting goods from one place to another, whereas bourbon involved so many sub industries, and that gives it more opportunity to be involved in disputes.
1: For those of us like me, I am not a a bourbon drinker. So can you explain to those of us who are not bourbon drinkers the difference between bourbon whiskey and any other kind of whiskey?
2: It's a great question and it's not always answered on tours if you've been to any of the other tours. Uh, A lot of the tour guides though will say that all bourbon is whiskey but not all whiskey is bourbon and that's one way to think of it. Whiskey includes uh, scotch. It includes Canadian whiskey, Japanese whiskey, and and rye whiskey. Those are probably the main ones. And bourbon is distinctive among all of those because it is made with at least 51% corn and it has to be made in the United States. And other whiskeys have similar protections. Scotch can only be made in Scotland. So we have the, the territorial uh, restrictions on different on different types of whiskey, but really it's about the grain and location when it comes down to uh, what type of whiskey qualifies as, as which subcategory.
1: So, from what I read, and just clarify this for me, but bourbon doesn't have to be made in Kentucky. Is that correct?
2: That's correct, and okay. I would I would say for people I talk with who are new to bourbon, I would say at least ninety percent believe. Bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. And it really started out that way. Rye whiskey was the type of whiskey that was made outside of Kentucky. Uh, It was very popular in Maryland and Pennsylvania in particular. And when settlers came to the western frontier, Kentucky, they found that rye didn't grow so well, but corn was abundant. And they needed a way to preserve the corn to get it to market. And the way to do that was to turn it into a commodity. And that was whiskey. So whiskey from Kentucky was originally known as bourbon whiskey, and everyone associated it with Kentucky. But you're absolutely right. It can be made anywhere in the United States, from Alaska to Florida, but you're not going to find good whiskey in either of those states.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so bourbon is a purely American... Liquor. Is that accurate too?
2: That is absolutely accurate, 100% accurate. And there will be trade fights led by our government when some producer in another country tries to sell something with the word bourbon on it. (laughs) We have trade treaties with other countries where they agree to enforce our territorial ownership right over the word bourbon.
1: You talked a little bit about how the idea for the book came about. So let's talk a little bit. You have a blog. Is that the Sipping Corn? That's right.
2: Sipping Corn. And (laughs) I got that from an old timer uh, who was being interviewed on a documentary and he referred to drinking bourbon as sipping corn. I think he was (laughs) asked how he preferred his corn and he said he prefers to sip his corn. (laughs) So I called the blog Sipping Corn.
1: I love it. So were you a bourbon drinker Is that what led you to create the blog? Because you mentioned that then from the blog is how the book came about. Were you always interested in bourbon even before you started the blog?
2: I wouldn't say always because when I moved to Lexington in 1993, I wouldn't have been able to tell you anything about bourbon. I would have called things bourbon that weren't. I didn't have any idea about it. I may not have even ever had bourbon. Uh, At least I don't remember before coming here. And my first introduction to bourbon would have been a UK football game, and it probably would have been a really bad bourbon mixed with one of the largest Cokes that you could get. (laughs) So probably not a favorable experience at all. But once I moved to Louisville and I slowly but surely began to appreciate bourbon and stopped mixing it in Coke. And slowly but surely, first you have it on the rocks and then pretty soon you're trying it neat and then you're trying something higher proof and you begin to appreciate the, the flavors that you can find in bourbon. And then I'm a history nut. So as soon as I began to learn the history behind bourbon, that made it all the more enjoyable for me. So it was a definitely a progression that led to being a bourbon fan that then led to the blog that then led to the book.
1: Would you say at any point, because I, I think sometimes this happens, you know, somebody has an interest and if that interest then becomes a with writing attached, they can sort of be obsessive about it. <laughs> has your interest in bourbon and law and history ever kind of gotten that way?
2: I I would say by virtue of having written this book, it is proof positive that I've (laughs) passed the line into obsession. I have more bourbon knowledge that is useless than uh, than I probably do of knowledge that's useful. I am able to work with some clients in the bourbon industry, so it's to some extent helpful to have a broad-based knowledge, but I've gone down far too many rabbit holes researching for the book and meeting other bourbon enthusiasts. And one thing that unifies a lot of us is we go down those holes together. And it's, it's fun to have company when you're going down those holes.
1: My husband in the last year has developed an interest in bourbon, which made buying his birthday gifts this year really easy for me. But is it something that it helps you to actually drink the bourbon in order to- I guess, understand the story of bourbon? Because he talks about how some of them are very smooth going down, and some of them, you know, they just have different flavors. So do you feel like having that sensory experience helped you as you were writing the book?
2: It it did. And part of what I added to the book were were a handful of bourbon reviews that I would try to slip in when I was talking about a particular brand. So One thing that a lot of people have found fun with the book is as they get to one of those reviews, they'll set the book down, go to their cabinet, see if they have a bottle of Four Roses, and that's what they'll pour as they read a couple chapters that evening. And I I think that engagement definitely helps. And your husband's absolutely right that bourbons can be so different. Some are mellow, some are, let's call it uh, robust to be kind, And, (laughs) and, and that has given me different circumstances where I like different types of bourbon. If it's a chilly fall night and I've got a fire going in the in the pit in the backyard, then I'll take one of those more robust bourbons and I'll nurse it as you watch the flame. I don't want to... Go overboard and say how therapeutic it is, but it's <laughs> it is therapeutic. And other occasions, I'd, I want a, a low proof bourbon. Other occasions, I'll have it on ice. Other occasions, I make cocktails, and bourbon is great for cocktails. For any uh, cocktail fans, there, it's just really versatile, and it works well with company. It works well with a campfire. It works well on a hot day, warm day, and it works well when you enjoy it with friends.
0: I want to know a little bit about some of these laws today that began as a result of whiskey law and some important laws like consumer protection, trademark laws, all started with bourbon. So can you give some examples? Are there any high profile cases that have been in the news in recent years that have been impacted by laws that were based on bourbon cases?
2: Sure. And the consumer protection point was maybe one of the most interesting to me because before the country protected us from adulterated meat and bad milk, which was formaldehyde was added to milk back then, it protected us from bad whiskey. And I just found that fascinating. So any consumer protection case that you hear about, and there's been several in the last five, 10 years uh, with different Brands giving different medicinal or health characteristics uh, from the Kashi line of cereals and and granola bars to Listerine saying that dentists say you don't need the the floss if if you use (laughs) Listerine and the Joe Montana Skechers commercials where he says, I'm an old broken man, but Skechers fixed me. Those all ended up with Consumer Protection Act claims. And you can go all the way back to bourbon to support how those cases were handled. One funny one that you might recall, it was about 10 years ago, there was a guy whose first name was Victor, and he started an online store called Victor's Secret. (laughs) And he sold not just lingerie, but some maybe more risque items on his website. And the owner of Victoria's Secret sued. And his defense was, well, Victor's my name. I get to call it uh, Victor's Secret. And bourbon cases were cited for Victoria's Secret's win. There are bourbon cases back from the 1800s through the mid-1900s that ruled that if you can't use your name, if it would be confusing as to the source of your product or if it would confuse consumers uh, as to any affiliation with another company. And Victor's Secret, just by its name, obviously, it sounds related to Victoria's Secret. And that all came through bourbon.
0: One of the things that I thought was interesting about your book when I was reading it is you're talking about writing about people's stories instead of more legalese. But there's so many of the traditional bourbon families, The what's in the name? There might have six children in the family and they all wanted to make bourbon, but they can't all use the family name if they're not you know, distilling under the same company so mm-hmm. I, I would think there's a lot of interesting family dynamics going on in in some of that history there
2: if I could go to a beam family reunion and be a fly on the wall I, I would do that because beam is one of those families that you just described they're obviously uh, still part of Jim beam but a beam was the first distiller in 1935 at Heaven Hill and other beams have been the distillers at, at Heaven Hill. There are beams at a small distillery in Lebanon called Limestone Branch. There are beams in the industry really everywhere. And you're exactly right. They can't use their beam name on the labels. They can't use it as part of a brand, but they're all part of the same family. And they do have family reunions and they all still get together and they all still get along and they all have this singular goal of making whiskey better than their long-lost cousins. And it's it's nice to have that kind of retention of the, of the family spirit in a business that's gotten to be big business.
1: You mentioned the consumer protection. So the bourbon cases, and I guess it wasn't just like one bourbon case, but did producers of bourbon, were they trying to say it had medicinal properties?
2: They did. And during Prohibition, you could actually still buy bourbon if you had a prescription. And it was sold in one pint bottles as medicinal whiskey. And it it said medicinal uh, on it. You could get a prescription, I think every 10 days or so for for a pint of bourbon. But even before then, several of the brands, and there is one notorious brand that I cover in the book called Duffy's it really went overboard saying what sort of medicinal qualities it had. And Duffy was really the proverbial snake oil salesman. It it didn't have any of those qualities. Of course, medicine wasn't as well understood as it it is today, but he was still making up all those claims. But it was believed that it had uh, medicinal qualities. I mean, even think back to Probably only 50 years ago, a mother would rub whiskey on a on a teething baby's gums. Hmm. Now, it numbs it. It's really not anything to do with medicine. It's just the, the alcohol content provided numbing on the gums. But it's the same sort of belief to some extent.
1: With your book being based in whiskey law... I would imagine some people might think, well, you know, it's going to be dry. There's going to be a lot of legalese in the book. So what did you do when you were writing it to kind of make it more palatable for people who don't have a background in law?
2: I worried about that every day of writing it. So much of my daily writing as a lawyer is meant to be persuasive. But if you've ever read anything that a lawyer wrote, it's stilted and it's it's using language that's really not familiar. And so I, I worked really hard to use a more familiar language. And then as I kept revising, I, I sort of fell into telling stories and I realized that's what I do here. I make sure this is not a law book. I try not to cite cases and law in what I'm writing. I have a lot of footnotes. So if if someone is a researcher and wants to find my source, you (laughs) can go to the footnotes and find my source. And those are all going to be lawsuits and statutes and those sorts of things. But I'm not teaching law through this. I'm not really, to some extent, trying to teach too much about bourbon or history. But I decided telling stories was the way to do this and tying it into the overall development and path that the country was on.
1: A lot of our guests that we've interviewed who have written books, a lot of times they're part of a, a writer's group. They sort of have always intended at some point to write a book. So did you have a group of people? who maybe weren't lawyers, that you would shove them your manuscript and say, what do you think? How how is this going to play with just an average reader?
2: I wish that I did. I was, for some period of time, embarrassed is maybe a strong word, but I, I was embarrassed of what I was writing because I thought that clients wouldn't want to have an attorney who was writing about bourbon. You don't want the bourbon attorney he's always thinking about bourbon or drinking or whatever. So I kept it hush-hush for a while as I developed my strategy and my themes that I was writing. But then I I did get some good, helpful reviews from several non-lawyers. And I can't tell you the sense of relief that I had when they liked it. And it wasn't too lawyerly. And I knew I was on the right track. And I, I absolutely knew that had to be my goal. And then the editorial process through Publisher really helped refine that and remove the maybe overly lawyer tendencies that I had missed. So I I can't say enough about the uh, editorial process.
0: Were there some things that you learned while researching the book that really surprised you? I mean, I know you work with Bourbon Law as your job, but were there things that were super interesting to you that you had never heard before?
2: Well, one thing was probably just the overall impact that bourbon has had. I I never would have dreamt that bourbon would have led so many substantive areas of law. The other thing that I would say surprised me would still go back to the Consumer Protection Act issue. I never would have thought that the country would have not been protecting us from adulterated meat, but decide that Bad whiskey was something to protect from. <laughs> um, that really amazed me. I, d- I didn't know the progression of the Pure Food and Drug Act before I got into this. But the something called the Bottled and Bond Act was in 1897, and the Pure Food and Drug Act wasn't until 1906. Hmm. So we had this focus on whiskey. It, it surprised me how all-pervasive bourbon was at the time. Hmm.
0: Explain what bottled in bond means, because you see that on all liquor bottles, or is it just bourbon?
2: Yes, it can be other spirits. So it can be a rye whiskey, it can be uh, other spirits, but bottled in bond adds another layer of regulation to, let's stick with bourbon, it adds another layer of regulation. Bourbon has its own set of rules that are strict and actually strict compared to any other spirit. Bourbon has the most strict requirements. And bottled and bond adds even more. Bottled and bond means that the bourbon can only be made during one distilling season. So you can't uh, combine barrels that are 12-year-old and barrels that are 8-year-old to find some flavor profile that you like. You're stuck with one season. It can only come from one distillery. It has to be made by one distiller, and it has to be bottled at exactly 100 proof. So you really can't hide what you have in your barrels. A lot of times a bourbon producer will try to bring in some oak flavor with an older bourbon, will try to bring in uh, maybe some lighter fruit flavor with a younger bourbon, and then have a lot of bourbon in the middle that, that rounds it out. And there are a lot of good distilleries out there that do a great job at finding these different components and finding a way to blend them together. When you're doing bottled and bond, you're really stuck. If you don't have a good product, you're not going to want to to bottle it uh, under the bottled and bond act. So I, I think if you see a bottled and bond label, you have assurances that you're getting a quality product.
1: So I had several aunts and uncles who worked at distillers for over four decades. And when I was a kid, every napkin that we used in our house said George Dickel. And it, being in Kentucky, we're very bourbon heavy. So do you consider your book a, a Kentucky book or do you feel like it has broader appeal no matter where you live?
2: I think it starts as a Kentucky book because at the, the time period that most of my book covers, bourbon was considered to be a Kentucky product. And bourbon is certainly associated more with kentucky than it is any other state they say we make 95 percent of the bourbon even though you can make it in in any of the states but it's broader than that because again i try to track and show the relationship to the development of our country as a whole so i i think it's nationwide Uh, i think more people here might be attracted to it because of the title and because it involves bourbon and a lot of other places aren't as bourbon crazy as we are, but it tells a much broader story than just Kentucky.
1: So for for somebody who's just maybe dipping their toes into bourbon, are, are there one or two that you would say are good entry points to bourbon?
2: Absolutely. And and I just looking at it generally before I get to a couple of brand suggestions, my Suggestion for someone new to bourbon is to avoid high proof bourbon. Uh, To be a bourbon, it it has to be bottled at at least 80 proof. And that's that's twice the proof of schnapps and some other types of, of spirits. So it's maybe already starting high, but bourbon can be bottled up to the moon when it comes to the highest amount of proof. Some bourbon now is released what they call barrel proof or cask strength. They mean the same thing, but it's basically whatever alcohol content is in the bourbon when they dump the barrel, that's what they put it into the bottle. And so I've had some in the upper one thirties proof. Wow. And that's just, those are torches. Um, so <laughs> Definitely don't try to impress anyone by drinking a high proof bourbon. I would start with an 80 proof bourbon. I would also avoid anything over 12 years old because those tend to start having more oak influence. And I think people new to bourbon are turned off a little bit by the oakiness. It's something that really grows on you and has grown on me. And now I really enjoy the oak flavor in bourbon. But for new bourbon drinkers, I think it's a a turnoff. And i would avoid anything that's too young so i I would make sure that the bourbon i try is at least four years old because a lot of the young bourbon can really have some off-putting almost nail polish remover flavors to it it can be really harsh so you you start getting more mellow at three to four to five year range and bourbons in in that category I would start with uh, Four Roses, just the introductory Four Roses. It's 80 proof and it comes in a tall cream colored bottle and Four Roses is one of those distilleries that does a great job at blending different bourbons that it has together to get the flavor profile that they want. They're just fantastic at it. So that's a, it's a great introductory bourbon. One that's a little older than that is Elijah Craig Small Batch and that's my Price performer. I, I always recommend it to people new for bourbon, but it's something that I buy. It's about twenty six dollars, and it's always just so consistently good. It doesn't have an age on it, but it's they say it's between six and eight years old for the barrels they use for it. And it's just a a fantastic, well-rounded bourbon that I think both the the novice can enjoy and someone who considers himself to be an enthusiast can enjoy. I try really hard with bourbon when people ask me, how should I drink it? Well, my answer is always however you like. If you want to put it in a Coke, if you want to put it on ice, if you want to put it in a cocktail, however you want. Don't try to force yourself to drink a bourbon neat if that's not the way you enjoy it.
1: Well, I wrote both of those down. He will be happy to know that I took some advice from somebody who knows more than me about bourbon.
0: (laughs) And you know nothing.
1: (laughs) And I know nothing. And my husband maybe has a thimble full of knowledge
0: about bourbon. (laughs) You said that Bourbon Justice won't be your last book. And you also write your blog. So what plans do you have for the future in terms of writing?
2: Well, I'm researching, and I've used the past year to start researching. And at at first, I'm thinking, because of the research that I put into this, maybe writing a biography of one of the historical Bourbon figures would be good. But what I'm really leaning toward now, I'm sort of shifting gears midway through, is more, uh, and I don't know that there'll be any readers for this, but the philosophy of Bourbon. I was a philosophy major in college and knew full well that it wouldn't do anything for me professionally. But I really loved philosophy, and I was a philosophy major just because I loved it, not because I thought I would do anything with it. But on some of these nights where you contemplate a bourbon with the fire, it's really easy to start thinking in terms of aesthetics and ethics and even metaphysics. there's, I think, a lot of room without really getting too far in the weeds to have an enjoyable book that's about thinking and thinking with bourbon.
0: Well, you know, there was a book that I bought for my husband and called The Philosophy of Basketball. And if there's anything that's more Kentucky than basketball and bourbon, I don't know what it is. But obviously somebody's buying books about philosophy.
2: Well, I I hope there's (laughs) still some left. I I know it's... it's (laughs) A, a bourbon legal history book I know is a niche of a niche market and <laughs> philosophy of bourbon maybe add four more niches to that, <laughs> but it's, it's something that I enjoy. And if I enjoy it, then I figure it's it's worth writing.
1: Well, Brian, thank you so much for telling us about Bourbon Justice and, and for giving me some ideas of, of what I can buy for my husband. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading.
0: We are back with Brian Hara and with Carrie. And Carrie, surprise me. What are you reading? Well, I do have some news. Uh,
1: Not news. I mean, it's news for me. It's important, I guess, in my little small bookish world. But I had decided when we did our beginning of the new year episode, I had talked about some books that I wanted to read. So I have been making headway with those. And one of them, uh, I finished it. I gave it five stars. It is Once and Future Witches by Alex Harrow, who is a Kentucky writer. And she was a guest on our show when we were first starting out. And her book, well, it's fantasy. I should say that. It is a story of three sisters who happen to be witches. And what's really cool about the story, you know, it is about these sisters and it is about they're trying to bring the powers of witches back. But what the story does in a really cool way is it blends a lot of different things together. So it combines the story of these sisters with the story of social classes, feminism, women's suffrage, LGBTQ issues. It packs a lot of diverse ideas into this, what's a fairly simple story. One of the things that she does is, as part of the story, she takes some of the traditional tellers of fairy tales, right? So like the Brothers Grimm. Well, in this story, they are the Sisters Grimm. Charles Perrault was a fairy tale writer. And in the book, it's Charlotte. And so it took me a while to kind of go, oh, I see what she's doing. It's a fun book fantastical. And I really enjoyed it. And, and the fact that it's written by a Kentucky author, and it was fun and cool and, and made me think about a lot of things. And by the end of it, you're like, yay, women rock. So if that's your jam, then I suggest you pick it up.
0: Who's Charles Perrault?
1: I had to look this up. And
0: I've never heard, I've never a heard of a
1: French author getting this from probably wikipedia he laid the foundations for at the time a new literary genre the fairy tale Hmm. okay so he was in the late 1600s you know i saw the name charlotte and i was like okay that's not right and then i had to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole and go oh i see what she's doing in this story she's flipping reality on its head
0: So how did you like it in comparison to the 10,000 Doors of January?
1: I think I gave that one five stars. They're totally different books. There are no similarities between them other than they have female protagonists who are powerful. And I don't mean powerful like necessarily strong or necessarily winning everything. But like emotionally strong. You know, powerful in that way. Power in their own unique abilities and beliefs and who they are. All right. Well, Brian, you you mentioned that you do a lot of reading for your job day in and day out. So do you have a, a favorite book maybe in a window of time that you weren't completely overwhelmed with reading legal documents?
2: The book that always comes to mind to me is To Kill a Mockingbird. And even more particular than just the the book that is the period of time. My wife and I read it out loud in utero for both of our kids. And reading that book out loud without exaggeration is life-changing. I'd highly recommend everyone not only to read To Kill a Mockingbird, I I think a lot of your listeners probably have, but read it out loud. It adds so much depth to it.
1: Had you read it prior to when your wife was expecting
2: uh, no. So the first time that I had read it was reading it out loud.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And
2: so maybe that's part of what did it for me. But I've, I've read it several times since, and I always think of, of reading it out loud.
0: If you hadn't read it before, what made you decide on that book to read as opposed to something else?
2: Purely my wife's good suggestion. Okay. Um, she and my son are voracious readers. Uh, My son will be having two books at a time that he's reading, which I've never really been able to do, but he's got two or more. And my wife goes from one book to the next, to the next, to the next. So she's very well read. That was her suggestion that that we read that out loud. And I'm forever, ever thankful for it.
1: I teach that one. And it just has so many layers. I have read it over and over and over again. And every time I read it, there's something new that I haven't thought about that I realized.
2: Absolutely. And, and I think reading it out loud, you have to see those things. At least when I read a lot of times, I will end up realizing I've just skimmed over something. And depending on the book, I'll either go back or I won't. But reading it out loud forces you to see and feel everything that's happening.
0: So being a lawyer yourself, because so much of it takes place in a courtroom, do you think you see things in it that maybe a non-lawyer doesn't?
2: Maybe not see something, but maybe appreciate something that's going on in it. And I do that all the time on TV shows or in the 90s when I went through all the Grisham books. You know, there are things that they just don't happen that way, and it kind of bugs me about books and and TV shows when they don't happen the right way. But they all happened the way it happens in To Kill a Mockingbird, so it was all authentic on the on the courtroom side.
1: And I think lawyers—I mean, you can't walk two feet without a, you know running into a lawyer joke, right? right. <laughs> so, but but Atticus Finch, the character he exhibits, is what people aspire to be, you know, like sort of the best that there is. So it, it's kind of nice that lawyers have that character in a book who, I, I guess, redeems because they do get so much grief from the public.
2: Thankfully, we do, because there are plenty of, of bad character lawyers as well. And uh, this it, it is nice when you can have a character like Atticus.
1: Well, Amy, what have you been reading? Because it's hard for me to
0: keep up. Well, a few weeks ago, I was Googling Irish authors because it was almost St. Patrick's Day, and every St. Patrick's Day, I like to cook corned beef. An Irish soda bread, and I like to read an Irish author. I don't eat corned beef or Irish soda bread any other time of the year, only at St. Patrick's Day, (laughs) but I do like a good Irish book. And so on these lists, there was a name that popped up of an author that I had never heard of, and her name is Lisa McInerney. Her debut novel, The Glorious Heresies, was published in 2015 and it won several awards including the Women's Prize for Fiction, which is one of the UK's most prestigious awards. So The Glorious Heresies is set in Cork, Ireland after the Irish economy crashed sometime between like 2008, 2011. And it focuses on five characters who all live sort of on the edges of society. And the book starts with a character named Maureen, and she's an older woman whose son is a crime boss in Cork, Ireland. And she got pregnant as a very young woman and she gave up her baby. But when her son becomes an adult, he looks her up and he brings her back to Cork to live in one of his properties that he sort of refurbished, but it used to be a brothel. So one night an intruder comes in And Maureen hits the intruder over the head with a holy stone. And I had to look up what that was. There's a lot of dialect in this. But it's something like a religious icon that people would have in their homes, like a stone plaque. And she ends up killing this man. And so her son comes in, and he has to clean up the situation. And so this sets into motion a story that involves a very smart 15-year-old drug dealer who's the oldest of six kids being raised by his father, a prostitute that becomes involved with a religious cult, The teenage drug dealer's father, who's an old school friend of the crime boss, and their female next door neighbor who has a thing for young teenage boys. And all these different individual stories interconnect. So this book is very gritty and it deals with the people living on the edges. There's a lot of violence and sex, but it also has parts that are darkly funny. And so if you like Irish dark humor, you'll find some here. The book actually reminded me a little bit of a TV series that I loved called The Wire. And probably a lot of people have watched this or have heard of it. It was on HBO. It was... On Around the time of The Sopranos, I think. But in that show, it's set in Baltimore in the early 2000s, and it involves the crime world of drugs and guns within the housing projects in Baltimore. And this book sort of had a similar feel to me, but with an Irish sensibility and the Catholic Church having a role in everything as well. Most of the action in this crime novel revolves around Ryan, who's the teenage drug dealer. And then this author goes on to write two more books about him. So this is the first in the series. I did enjoy this. And I do plan on reading the next book at some point. But this book isn't for everyone. It's not a feel-good book. And it's, you know, brutally realistic. But what I enjoyed about it is that even though almost all of these characters have fatal flaws you also empathize with them and you see the good in them i mean almost no person is all good or all evil and so i enjoyed the way that the author helps you see the humanity in this group of people
1: well you had me sold when you said it's not a feel-good book i'm like it's not a feel-good book that sounds right up my alley <laughs> <laughs> no feel-good
0: books for carrie no
1: nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, Brian is going to answer his top five. We are back with Brian Hera, and we're going to ask him his top five. Question number one. So several years ago, my family went to Michigan, and we loved it. We visited Traverse City, and we went up into the UP And you are originally from Michigan. So what is one of your top places you recommend that other people visit when they come to Michigan?
2: Well, I I grew up on the west side of Michigan. So that's the Lake Michigan side. So I'm partial, but I will always recommend that people visit the Lake Michigan coast. And when you're going on the Lake Michigan coast, it's speckled with beach towns, starting with Saugatuck and then Holland then uh, Grand Haven, then my hometown of Muskegon, and then all the way up to Traverse City. And you can stop at any of those uh, beach towns, and one's better than the next. But I really recommend that you visit Sleeping Bear Dunes and take a <gasps> dune ride. They those are, are awesome. Fantastic. Oh, they're so fun. Yes.
0: We went to Traverse City, too, and the Sleeping Bear Dunes was one of the most memorable things that we did there. Now the, the water was very cold. Just not very many people swimming in Lake Michigan. Oh maybe if you're a hardy Michiganer you you will but Kentucky it, folks aren't swimming in Lake Michigan very much. It
2: all depends what you're used to. So the, <laughs> the the Michigan kids will swim. I remember one summer there with my kids And it was August, and Lake Michigan hadn't yet reached 70 degrees. Oh, wow. And the poor kids were just, their teeth were chattering. They were blue. (laughs) But they were kids, so they were in the water. I got into my ankles, and I was done.
0: (laughs) So question number two, you are a bourbon enthusiast, so we can't get away from the question of, What is one of your favorite bourbons made by one of the traditional bourbon distillers? And then there's lots of new up-and-coming bourbon makers with the new popularity of bourbon. And is there one that you're particularly excited about?
2: Yes, I'm excited about both of these questions. The first one, the bourbon that is maybe my go-to from a traditional distiller is almost anything from Four Roses. But they have a new label that they started, I think, three years ago called Small Batch Select. It's 104 proof, so it's not an introductory person bourbon, but again, Four Roses is the brand that takes all of their different recipes, and they have 10 of them, and they use different components, different percentages, different ages of each of their recipes, and they come up with just some absolutely fantastic blends. A lot of distilleries have two or three recipes, and they don't blend them together. You get one recipe or you get the other. Four Roses takes exactly the opposite approach and blends sometimes all 10 of their recipes into one of their bourbons. And Mm -hmm. so I'm a, a big fan of small batch select. And then for the up and coming, I think in a few years, this will no longer be considered an up and comer because they're doing so wildly well, but it's a distillery in Danville called Wilderness Trail. And Wilderness Trail started out as a yeast company. They propagate yeast and you can sell yeast and you control yeast. And that's what they started. They're they're scientists. And they were consulting with distilleries around the world about helpful and harmful bacteria and yeast and keeping their distilleries clean. And they decided that they can do the distillery operations too. So they now have a six-year-old bourbon they didn't sell any of it until it reached four years old, which is a feat in and of itself to be putting expense into something and not having any bourbon sales for four years. But they've they've done everything the right way, and their bourbon shows. It's, it's fantastic bourbon, and that's really, I think, the up-and-comer.
1: So in the past, you mentioned that you've been a a basketball coach, but you've converted to tennis. So what led to this conversion? And what is the top skill you've gained from playing tennis that you didn't expect to develop?
2: Basketball is a game that I've loved to play my entire life. And then when I had kids, I enjoyed coaching them. And up till a few years ago, I was still playing in an open league, meaning 18 and above. And it finally got to the point where either I'm too old or I'm too broken or they're too young or (laughs) too fast. But I I had to find something else to do. I finally realized my limits and my wife got me involved in a mixed doubles summer league. And I had played tennis in high school a little bit, but really not since then. And it was more than rust to kick off. But I really enjoyed being on a team with two people just playing doubles and have been playing ever since for the last three years. And what I've learned that I, I never appreciated before, because I thought with tennis, when you see it on TV, it looks like two people just pounding the ball as hard as they can to the other side. What I've learned is the strategy that goes into doubles play. And the way that you set up a shot, it's not just hit it as hard as you can. And and our coach disabused me of that notion. And I'm finally starting to learn the strategy. And that's brought a whole new level of enjoyment for tennis for me.
0: So question number four, I miss traveling so much. That's one of the things I've missed most during COVID. And your family in the past has enjoyed traveling together to various places, both domestically, but also internationally. So what is... One of the top, most unusual outside the U.S. travel experiences that you've had.
2: It would have to be our last trip pre-COVID. So this summer of 2019, my daughter was going to be leaving for college that fall. And we thought this would be the last chance we would have time to spend with her. Well, would we know that the next spring break she would come home and be home for six months before she went back to school? But we thought we would take a big blowout trip, and we went on a driving tour of Italy that my wife planned, and she thankfully convinced me to rent a small car. I want the rental agency offered me a big Audi. And I thought, well, I need the legroom. It'll be good to drive a car. I had no idea how small the roads were. (laughs) And and that's why they have small cars, I think, because and even the small cars, you can't fit two on some of the roads. And the best part of the trip, in hindsight, there's plenty of art and history to see in Italy. But the most fun I had was in the middle of Tuscany on a road with nobody else we got a flat tire because another car forced us off the road and I hadn't changed a flat tire in at least 20 years. And I had this moment where I had to try to remember back to what my dad taught me. And I had to prove to my kids and Laura (laughs) that I could change a tire and the spare wasn't where I expected it to be. And there were some struggles in getting it done. But looking back at it, that was so enjoyable to to change a tire in Tuscany. And there was a nearby house where an old lady came out and invited my daughter to her garden, and they had tea. And it was just fabulous. It was a great part of the trip that was not in our plan, and I think that's what made it so great. It's The things that you don't plan for can be the most memorable.
1: Our family, we've decided that even though... Our middle child is a pain in the butt on vacations, but it's the things that he has done that provide us our most hilarious memories. When we went on a trip and he got his hand stuck in a gigantic lobster statue. And I thought I was going to have to call (laughs) the fire department on Edisto Island And I've just lubed him up. I carry lotion with me. And when we finally got him out, but it was horrible, but it's one of our best memories. Oh, that's
2: fantastic. I know exactly (laughs) what you mean.
1: All right. Last question. You have also volunteered with the Kentucky Humane Society for like over two decades. So what is the top job that you love doing at the Humane Society when you volunteer?
2: Well, now I do pro bono legal work for them, but my favorite job ever with the Humane Society, is playing Santa. And I did that for probably about five years straight in the late 90s. And they call it Picture Your Pets with Santa. And you you haven't seen me, but I'm 6'6", and if I'm soaking wet, I maybe hit 200 pounds. I am not a Santa (laughs) shape. And they had to look long and hard to find a long enough Santa (laughs) outfit and then pad me up and I just loved all of the animals. You know, most of them were dogs and, and cats, but I had parrots, I had iguanas, uh, I had a few <laughs> exotic pets. And it was just such a fun experience to, to see all the owners going crazy for their pets and just seeing all the different personalities uh, in the dogs in particular and trying to get the cats to cooperate. <laughs> just a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. My daughter and I volunteered with the pictures for Santa a couple of years in a row. And one year I was the person trying to wrangle the animals onto Santa's lap. And in fact, uh, for Christmas one year, my husband and my daughter took all three dogs down for a picture with Santa to give as a gift to me, but one of our dogs, the golden retriever, is actually scared of Santa, just like a toddler mm. would be, <laughs> and didn't want to get anywhere near Santa, although the other two would sit on his lap. But she's like way over, far away from Santa, and then the other two are on his lap. But
2: One of my favorite pictures, my wife and daughter came with our dog, and our a dog came down the aisle, barked her full head off at me until she <laughs> realized who I was. <laughs> But my daughter was absolutely mortified. So in the picture that we have, our dog is literally smiling. And our daughter has, she's two and and she is a full on red faced cry. And it's, it's a fantastic picture.
1: That's awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. We thoroughly enjoyed learning about bourbon and about your book, Bourbon Justice.
2: Thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking about it and hearing about these other books. I think you'll inspire me to maybe get past the, the high school books that I've been stuck in here for the last six years.
0: Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www dot dot com follow us on facebook at perks of being a book lover and on instagram at perks of being a book lover pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air if you enjoy our show spread the word and leave us a review on apple podcasts that helps other listeners find us finally a huge thank you to forward radio 106.5 fm a grassroots community-based radio station in louisville kentucky You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.